Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. We glad you're here online or on campus. You may know this about me, you may not, but I'm a type A personality. Um, maybe that's surprising to you. I'm not really sure. Here's how I would define type A. There's probably lots of definitions, but here's how I would define it. I am driven and I drive my wife nuts. Like those two things together, right? I am driven and I drive my wife crazy. And it looks kind of like this, like on a normal Saturday, sort of a day off. I have a thousand things that I want to accomplish, right? And so I want to cut the grass, weed the garden, call my mom, smoke a brisket, go to the gym, read a book, and do that before lunch. And then the afternoon, right, it's like there's all this stuff that I want to do, and I drive my wife crazy because if I don't get seven of the eight things done before lunch, I drive her nuts. I'm like, I'm a failure. I can't do anything right. Can't believe I didn't get that done. I wish I got more done today. And it's like, if I don't accomplish what I want to accomplish for the day, I feel like a deadbeat, right? Super type A, and my wife is a saint. You should pray for her. You should thank God for her. She puts up. Some of you are like this too. Yeah, some of you are more whack than that. You're the kind of person that you have all this stuff and then you complete something like you weeded the garden and you have to go back and write it on a list and check it off to prove that you did it. Like some reason you're not smart enough to just have it in your head. You got to check it off a list. Come on, right? You type A's that make lists. Eh, right? But we're, I think we're all driven. We all want to accomplish. Maybe it looks different than for me, but I think we all want to be productive. We want to accomplish something. We want to come to the end of the day or the end of a week We want to come to the end of our lifetime and say we were productive. Here's how I would define productive. Productive means we create abundance. It means we're effective. And this this definition came to light in in front of me, kind of became more clear. When I went to the doctor, I had a cold, and he said, Joe, is your cough productive? I'm like, "I, I don't know. He's like, did it create abundance of mucus? I'm like, yes, it is productive. Right? Like it's a way of understanding it's productive if you clear your lungs out, right? That's an effective cough, a productive cough, right? And so when we we look at our lives, we look at our day, we look at our lifetime, and we go, I want to create abundance. I want to be effective. I want to finish the day, the week, the month, the year, the lifetime, because the opposite of this is unproductive and ineffective. Like, do you want that to be your Saturday? Do you, do you get to the end of a day or a lifetime or a week and go, you know what? That was the most unproductive lifetime I ever lived. That's the most ineffective. And, and sadly, I know, newsflash, you're going to die and people are going to talk at your funeral. And when they talk at your funeral, are they going to say you were productive or improductive? Were you effective or unaffected? I've been to funerals where people have been unproductive and unaffected, and it's sad. But it's a choice that we make in our lives to say, I want to be someone that creates abundance. I want to be someone that accomplishes something. I want to make a difference in our world. I want to make a difference in relationships. I want to come to the end of my life and say, I was effective. I was here for a purpose. 
I accomplished something for good for other people. I was productive. And may look different for all of us of what that means. You might even need a list. But it might look different, but I think it's what we all long for and want in our lives. So we've been working our way through the book of Titus, this book in the Bible that's written by Paul to a younger leader. We're looking at asking, what's it look like to be a credible Christian? Because if Jesus really lived, and if he really died, and if he really rose again from the dead, if Jesus really lives inside my heart, and I believe he's going to come again and make all things right and new, that when I take my final breath, I'll be in his presence forever. If that's all true, it has to change how I live and act now. Or it's just a joke. It's just a fairy tale. It's not credible. It's not believable. There's a choice that I make to live a life that's believable, trustworthy, credible. And Paul, as he finishes this letter today, he's going to add to that list of credible things we can do. Hey, are you going to be effective and productive? Like a part of being credible is that we're effective and productive as humans for something bigger and broader than just you and me. We accomplish things in this world to make this world a better place and show that God is alive and real through how we live. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3, electronic copy, paper copy, love for you to follow along with me as we work our way through this. This is the end of Paul's letter to this younger leader. It's our last sermon on this topic. Next week, we're going to start a new sermon series about abundance and how to live in abundance. So join me for that next week. But today, Titus chapter 3, and here's what I believe. I, I believe you're not an accident as a person. I believe you're not here on accident, that God knows you and loves you and wants to teach you something and wants to guide all of us and equip all of us to live a life that's effective and productive in this world. And so would you pray with me and let's ask God for help. God, thanks for the opportunity to talk today. Thank you for your spirit that's inside every son or daughter of yours that put their trust in you and that now you want to use your word that's alive and active to change us and to grow us and to make us look more like you, that we might be believable, trustworthy, because you're alive in us. It starts to show on the outside of us and how we behave and the effective, productive things we can accomplish in this world for your glory. We want to be convicted. We want to be changed. We want to hear from you. We want to learn. So we lean in and we ask you to remove every distraction in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's writing this letter again to a younger leader. He's left him behind on this island of Crete. And he's said, hey, I'm leaving you here to establish credible Christians and credible churches. I want you to teach people, lead people in a way that they would understand how to be productive and effective. And so what he does in chapter three is the beginning of chapter three, he kind of establishes what it looks like to be productive and profitable. And at the end of chapter three, he's going to say, now this is what it doesn't look like. So he first leads with what it does look like, and then he's going to share what it doesn't. So just as a quick reminder, we kind of went over this last week, but let's start in verse one of chapter three. He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. We talked about this last week. God created our universe to be a place of order. And so he created leaders and followers and all of us have to follow someone. We all have to submit to someone, whether we like it or not. It's how God designed the universe. 
He continues in verse three. At one time, you two were foolish. You were disobedient. You were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because he was merciful. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. God's been merciful to you and me. I'm a jerk. You are too. And God loves us jerks so much that he's merciful to us and creates a way for us to come back into relationship, not because we deserve that, but because of how great and merciful he is. And because he's been merciful to you, and to me, he wants us to be merciful with the leaders around us, even the jerk boss and the jerk politician. He wants us to show them mercy to prove that he's alive in us. Verse eight, this is a trustworthy saying. I wanna stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. God rescued you, changed you, lives inside you, it's supposed to make a difference. It's supposed to impact how you live and think and walk and act. Live today as if Jesus is alive in you and he's going to return. And so this, in Paul's way, is saying, here's how to live a lifestyle that's profitable and productive and effective, verses one through eight. Now he switches gears in verse nine and says, that's how you live productive and effective life. Now here's how not to do it, verse nine. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Check this. He's saying there's a profitable, efficient, excellent, productive way to live as a Christ follower. Verse nine, now here's how you, not, you shouldn't live. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, quarrels. Unprofitable, useless. In context, what he's talking about here, he brought this up in the beginning of the letter in verse chapter one. He talked about how there are rebellious people, meaningless talkers and deceivers who have to be silenced because they're trying to destroy things. He brings that back up here in verse nine and says, there are people causing foolish controversies in the midst, in your family, in your church family, arguing about genealogies. Can you imagine arguing about a family tree? It's like, who was there? Right, like you look back on a family tree and like nobody was there, right? So we're sitting here arguing, no, Aunt Matilda said this and Aunt, like what? He's looking back over centuries with the family of God and saying, people are arguing about family trees. They're causing controversy and quarrels over insignificant things. They're causing drama. Talking about irrelevant, non-important, no big deal things within the church and it's causing disunity and distraction. And this doesn't mean that it's not a place to have healthy dialogue and disagreement. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying these people are nitpicking. They're looking at certain things and situations in the family of God and dividing over family trees. He's like, this is not profitable. And it would be like in our modern day today at our church, somebody going, I can't believe they give out free coffee. I don't like the taste. I wish they would use my coffee, not theirs. Like, why don't they have... Um, more syrups, like just foolish, stupid stuff. It's, hey, I think our pastor's too democratic. I think our, our pastor's too Republican. I think our pastor's too liberal. I think our pastor's too conservative. I think our pastor's woke, right? Like it's all these little things that people start talking about 
whispering about meaningless things just to cause drama, just to cause problems. The music's too loud. The music's not loud enough. The music needs more Holy Spirit. There's not enough Holy Spirit. So all this meaningless, trivial garbage. He says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels. Why? Because these things are unprofitable and useless in the family of God. So I get your point, Paul. You're like, avoid drama in church. Got it. But he takes it a step further, which shows there's something serious going on here. He says in verse 10, warn a divisive person once. The word divisive means someone who's contentious and builds little factions, groups. This is more than just a person going, the music's too loud, the coffee's not good, right? It's, they're building like a little entourage, a little squad of people. They're trying to build a group of following, a posse of people who are divisive and factious and contentious. Starts with one person complaining, and now a group starts to grow and begins to disrupt and divide the family of God. He says, avoid these types of people. Warn a divisive person once, verse 10, and then warn them a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. Like, whoa, this little drama talk you're having, Paul, with Titus is a pretty big deal. Like, warn them once, tell them twice, and then have nothing to do with them? It's pretty serious what he's talking about. is isn't just a little drama. He's like, no, in love, talk to that person because they're arguing and nitpicking and causing problems. Warn them once and, and actually try to warn them again. But if they're not willing to listen to you, get away from them. Have nothing to do with them. It reminds me of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 saying, hey, when someone makes, does something sinful, go talk to them in love and warn them. And if they don't listen to you, take some other people with you. And if they don't listen to them, like you should have nothing to do with them anymore. Like there's something serious going on here. Have nothing to do with this person. And then in verse 11, it gets worse. You may be sure that such a person causing drama is warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. Meaning they've been warned, they're making drama, they're nitpicky, they're controversy, they're arguing foolish things. You warn them, then have nothing to do with them. They refuse correction, they have no excuse. Their lifestyle, like get away from them. He's, he's making this serious and going, what people do when they act this way is gonna rub off on you. If you don't treat this seriously, it's gonna impact them negatively and it's impacting you negatively. And so I want to summarize all of Titus 3 because it's this idea of profitable, effective. In Titus chapter 3, he starts with this whole conversation about being productive. He says, submit to authority. You want to live a productive life? Realize that God designed this world for you and me to live under authority, not based on whether you respect the person in authority, but he designed the world where we submit to good leaders and not so good leaders, because in doing that, we show we trust a God who's bigger than all of that. Submit to authority and remember God's mercy. If you want to live a productive life, remember that God has been merciful to you while you were a jerk. And so be merciful to others who are jerks too. In that productivity, you live a life that shows he's alive in you and it's productive. And he says, but now you want to know how to live unproductive? Participate in drama. And you're like, really? How I live an unproductive, ineffective life is participating in drama. Like, is it really that big of a deal? He's like, yeah, it's a big deal. You want to live an unprofitable, ineffective life, participate in drama. And you might go, I don't know if I believe this. Well, let me take you in a little bit closer. 
You know, all of us have to go somewhere. We have an address, but we don't know how to get there. What do we do? We put it into our GPS, right? We put it into our phone or into Waze, and we type it in, and we go, I need to go this place. And it tells us, okay, here's how long it's going to take for us to get there. And we start to drive, and everything's going great. And then that red shows up, right? It's like, ah, oh, crud. It was going to take me 10 minutes. Now what happens next? Then the device starts to reroute, right? When you see that come up, you're like, oh, no, like this is going to be terrible. It's supposed to take me 10 minutes. Now it's rerouting and I have to go around and I have to go a different direction. And what's so interesting about using a device like this, this has probably never happened to you, but when this happens to me, I go, I'm not sure I'm going to follow it. <laughs> like I'm staring at red, right? The, 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 the road is bright red and I'm looking up in front of me and the lights on the cars in front of me, it's completely red. And yet I'm going, ah, you know what? I think I'm just going to go through it. Like, I'm just going to, I'm not going to reroute. I'm not going to make a different pass. I'm just going to keep, you've never done that, right? My wife and I have this conversation. Like, every time this happens, we're like, should we delete it or should we not? I don't know. Why do we even open the app if we're not going to use it? But this happens to all of us. And there are times that we think we can just go right into it and it won't impact us. Not me. I won't get caught in that traffic. It won't be one of those three-hour jams that I'm stuck there and I have to turn the engine off. That wouldn't happen to me. I'm smarter than the GPS. I don't need to reroute because it takes energy to reroute, doesn't it? It's like a decision you have to make to reroute. It's a decision you have to make to go straight into it too. And when Paul says, avoid foolish controversies and drama, he's saying, are you willing to reroute? There's red in front of you. There are people in your life that all they do is spread drama and problems and nitpicky and negative and destructive and gossip and slander. They're right in front of you. You know who she is. You know who he is. It's red right in front of you. But you think you're going to get through that interaction or that group of people without being impacted by it? Everything is going reroute, 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 reroute. Everything inside you, reroute, reroute, reroute. And you go, no, I'm going to go. Right, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'll be all right. We minimize and downplay how this type of behavior and this type of action in any group of people, in a family, in a church, at work, causes negativity in our lives and impacts us and derails us. But we go, I'll be it through and I won't get, it won't bother me. And Paul's like, no, that's not how it works. Actually, a story about a guy here at Faith Church. Met him a number of years ago. He grew up in the church. God in his, put his life and heart and trust in Jesus over time and got stuck in some life problems and started to grow an addiction. And the addiction took his family down and it took his marriage down and landed him in divorce. Super sad. And somehow he found his way to Faith Church and came to know Christ again, recommitted his life to Christ, started to go to AA and celebrate recovery. And like you could see his life was starting to change and didn't mean everything was going to be perfect again, but things were starting to be better. And you could see the joy getting back into his life and he started to serve other people. And somehow over time, he got into a section of faith church that was super negative because this happens right here. And he got sidelined by it. And now a guy that knew the joy of the Lord and the mercy of Christ displayed to him, now he's sidelined by negativity because he saw in front of him 
people that were negative and nitpicky, but instead of going around it, he went through it and it impacted him. It can happen to all of us. Nobody's above this or beyond it. And sometimes it happens in little doses and sometimes it happens in big doses. When this stuff happens, you have a choice when you see people, that person, that individual, that group, who you know is causing drama and slander. Because in any group of people, here's why this is important. In any group of people, unity is valuable and it's delicate. Like, and I say unity, I don't mean uniformity. That's not what I mean. But unity is delicate and it's valuable, not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all have to look alike and talk alike and act alike and agree upon everything. But it does mean that I can choose to live in unity with other brothers and sisters and I can choose to not live that way. That's a choice that I make. Again, I'm not saying that you can't disagree and have questions and even disagree sharply, but there's a way to do it that's not divisive because unity is both valuable and delicate. I look at our families, right? In my family, in my wider family, there's lots of differences I have from the people in my family, my immediate family and my wider circle of family. But in love, you choose to care for one another even though you have differences. And the things you have in common in your family are more important than the things you have different in your family. And then COVID hits. And how many families of people that we know, maybe yours, that over COVID, masks, vaccines, politicians, families that loved one another are now divided over things that in hindsight, in perspective over years go, wow, we fought at Thanksgiving or we didn't get together for Christmas or we didn't see each other for years because of what he thought or what she thought or what he believed or what he believed because we didn't choose to love one another at the highest, widest and our being right was more important than love. And when being right is more important than love, this delicate, valuable unity is destroyed. Is it more important for you to be right or for you to be loving? And again, that doesn't mean that you're not gonna have robust debate. You're gonna have differences, but there's a way to be respectful in that. So if there's drama ahead for you, if there's drama ahead, reroute. If you're in a situation where you're looking ahead and going, I know that person in that situation and those circumstances, I know what's gonna happen. They're contentious, they're gossip, they're judgmental, they're negative, they nitpick, and they're building a group of nitpickers. If you see that and you don't reroute it around it, it's going to impact you negatively. So recognize that. And that's true at home, it's true in your family, it's true at church, it's true at work. Recognize that because here's the deal. Paul says, Bad company corrupts good character. Is that true or not true? Like the Bible says, bad company corrupts good character. Have you found that to be true for you? I know for me, like if I hang out with people that have different values and they're negative, it rubs off on me. So when we see this, why do we think, oh, that won't happen to me? That bad company won't impact me negatively. And we just drive straight into it. And then we wonder why we get corrupted? It's like reroute, 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 reroute. See it, recognize it, and go, you know what? I don't want to be a part of that. And again, it doesn't mean you can't disagree. It doesn't mean there's not healthy debate. It doesn't mean you can't make critique, but there's a way to do it in love, right? And so if I want to be right and I'm not loving, I'm wrong. 
If I, if I need to be right and I have to argue and I have to use whatever I need to to get your attention and belittle you, if I'm not filled with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, but I'm right, does that make me right? No way. Right? And so even when I disagree, I can do it with love. Even when I debate, I can do it with respect. Even when I totally have a different opinion and maybe have to walk in a different direction, I can do it without hurting you or harming you or belittling you. Drama ahead, reroute. Because here's the thing. There's always more going on than what we see. There's always layers, right? There's always more than what we see happening around us. And so I look at this uh, pretty well-known verse in 1 Peter. Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I mean, it's just a true statement. And we, and we hear this and we go, what does that mean? Is it like a cartoon where on every shoulder there's like a devil here and an angel here and the devil's roaring in my ears and telling me to do bad things and I can push that devil down and listen to this one, right? Is it a cartoon? Is it real? Is it fake? What is it? Here's what's interesting to me. This word devil is the Greek word, I'm not really good at Greek, <laughs> Um, I'm not really good at English either, is <laughs> the Greek word diabolos. The devil is the Greek word diabolos, and that means oh, to separate. The devil is a separator. Now, go back to this definition. Your enemy, the separator prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The separator is at work. So fly at the highest level at this moment. The Bible says, and I know it to be true, that I'm sinful, that I'm a rebel, that I don't want to please God. I don't want to honor God. I don't want to listen to God. I'm a rebel. And that it's my sin, that rebellion that separates me, disconnects me from God. I'm cut off from God. Jesus enters planet earth to live and to die and to rise again, to pay for my sins on the cross, to reconnect me to God. And what does the diabolos, the separator, want to do? He wants you and me to think, I'm not worthy of that. Or, you know what, I'll try harder and I'll work my way to reconnect, but I can't. It doesn't work. I don't need God. All these things that the, the Bible says the diabolos, the, the devil, is blinding the hearts of those who don't believe, calling you and me to go, that's not true, God can't be real, and if he is real, he couldn't love me, I've made such a mess of my life, there's no way he would forgive me for free, I must have to work harder. That's what the Diabolos is doing, he's separating what has been joined together. If I put my heart and trust in Jesus, he puts his spirit inside me. And one of the things the spirit of God does inside me is he reconnects me to God the Father, Right? He reconnects this vertically, and he reconnects me to brothers and sisters in Christ horizontally. We're now brothers and sisters in Christ, created in the image of God, forgiven by Christ, and what is the evil one trying to do? Cut those connections. Cut the connection between you and God. He doesn't really, he doesn't care about you, if he loved you, if he was good, if he was just. All these things he's trying to diabolo, separate. And he's doing it among you and me too. He's trying to separate us, cut us apart, isolate us. What's fascinating about that is it's so easy to go, it's just a cartoon. No, it's real. And guess what? So many times I get deceived in thinking I'm right. And because I'm right, 
it's okay for me to have controversy with you. And the diabolos, the separator, the devil, is using me as a pawn to bring disunity into my family, into my neighborhood, into my country, and into my church. I'm being used as a pawn to separate. We go, where is he? Wow, when Joe is so confident he's right, and he's more confident about being right than he is confident about being loving. And even if he is right, he does it in such an unloving, disrespectful, unmerciful, slanderous, gossipy way that I'm being used as a divider instead of a uniter. And that's not God-honoring. And that's why he says, reroute, reroute, reroute. This is not a productive life for you to live, and in every circumstance of your family and workplace and church, you get full of drama and you wanna be a part of the problem, you see the red light and you see the people in front of you acting inappropriately and you do nothing about it and you think I can get through it without a problem, you're going to not get through it and you're gonna be a part of the problem and maybe even a pawn in the hands of the evil one dividing a family or a workplace. This is not... God's design for you and me. As he finishes this letter, Paul, at the end of the letter, Titus chapter 3, verse 14, he says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. He kind of summarizes at the end of this letter to, to Titus this makes the summary statement. When he says, our people, who's he talking about? People that have put their trust in Jesus, right? So if you put your trust in Jesus, this is written for you and me. Our people, followers of Christ, must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, right? And so in my life, I can do things that are good or I can devote myself to doing things that are not good. I can, I can pursue doing good things or destructive things. He says, no, followers of Christ Devote yourself to doing what is good. When you go to work tomorrow or in your family or in your small group, in your neighborhood, are you devoted to doing good? Or are you part of destroying, confusing, deceiving? It's a choice you make. Devote yourself to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs. I like this phrase, urgent needs, because all of us have needs, right? All of us have all kinds of needs. But Paul's saying to Titus, you know, there's some urgent needs. And there's a difference between a need and an urgent need. If I have an urgent medical need, I go to a totally different place than if I just have a medical need. When you look at people in your neighborhood, in your family, do you see the urgent need or just the need? Do you see the problem or the urgent problem? I think when Jesus walked on planet Earth, he saw the urgent needs. It's why Jesus didn't deal with the politics of Rome. It's why Jesus didn't tackle every myth or every false teaching. He saw the urgent need and loved the urgent need. He was able to see that every person was created in the image of God with a soul that would never die. And the reason they were behaving the way they were behaving is because sin was breaking them. And so he saw the urgent need to re connect them to God the Father as the most important pursuit of his life. When you look at your children, do you see their urgent need or just their need? When you look at your adult children, do you see their urgent need 
or just the problems they're causing you or the sleepless nights? In your workplace, do you see the urgent needs of the people that work in front of you? In your school, urgent or just needs? Like, God, give me the eyes to see what's urgent, not what's not urgent. And he ends by saying, live a productive life. And again, from this whole chapter, we know that means submit to authority. It means remember God's merciful. It means avoid drama. And that's how I live a productive life. And when I get to the end of a passage of scripture like this, and I look at what Paul says, our people must learn to devote themselves to this. I go, I can't do this. Can you? I can't wake up and say, I want to devote myself to doing good. I can't wake up and look and go, I want to see urgent needs. I look most often and I see presenting needs. And oftentimes the presenting need is just a smokescreen to what's really needed behind that. But I see the presenting problem. I don't see the real need that's going on. And I don't know how to live a productive life. So this becomes my prayer. Like I pray this scripture. Like if God commands me to do something, I take what he commands me to do and I pray it. God, would you help me to devote myself to doing what is good and not destructive? God, would you help me to see the urgent needs in my home, in my work, in my church, in my country? God, would you help me to live a productive, effective life that makes good things, abundant things happen in this world? Would you help me? Because I can't do this by myself. Would you pray with me? Thanks, God, for the opportunity to learn and grow. Thank you that your spirit speaks and that you're growing and changing us. If we're humble and hungry, you feed your sons and daughters. God, I thank you for the journey we've taken through the book of Titus. Thank you for the reminder that when we grow in the truth that leads to godliness, that's when we're credible. When the reality of Christ living in me and coming again changes me from the inside out and makes me more loving and kind, that's how I'm credible, believable, trustworthy. God, I thank you for the teaching about leaders in the church and for the, for the warning about false teachers in the church that comes from this letter. I thank you for the reminder from this letter that the older people in our family are encouraged and exhorted to teach the younger and the younger are encouraged to be self-controlled. Thank you for the reminder that you're coming again and that because you're coming again, we should live to breathe love and justice for all people in this world and be agents of your justice in every corner. Thank you for the reminder that we should live under authority. Thank you for the reminder to avoid drama. That all of this is your teaching from your word to guide us in practical living and credibility. So God, I know the question I'm asking myself and the question worth asking here today is, where are you? Are you a credible Christian or are you a Christian by name only? If Jesus is alive in your heart, do you live as if it's true? Are you someone that lives an effective, productive life for God's kingdom, or are you living an effective, productive life for your own self-interests? Are you someone that gets caught up in drama and controversies? Are you someone that people are avoiding and not returning calls or emails because you are a drama king or drama queen? Lord, wherever we are, we bring all of this to you. We ask for your help. 
We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your peace. We ask for your strength to reroute, change paths, knowing you're always gracious and you're always kind. So help us, Father. Grant us peace and strength in our times that we might be believable, credible, magnetic, and productive on this earth. I pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.